Hi, welcome back to AS Level Divinity and today we're gonna be unpacking Matthew. Now, when you think of Matthew, you think of the coming of God's kingdom. That's one of the biggest theme within Matthew and of the Messiah Jesus and how this Messiah Jesus and God's kingdom here intersect. So, your concept of kingdom appears in all gospels but has a particular focus on Matthew and that's something I want you to focus in when we unpack Matthew. So what you're waiting for? Let's listen in. Now, on the authorship, right? Since none of the four gospels includes the name of their authors in the original manuscripts, they are technically anonymous. And this is not surprising, since the authors unlikely compiled their gospel accounts for members of their own churches to whom they were already well known. However, historical documents from early church provide significant insights to the gospel's authorship. The earliest traditions of the church are unanimous in attributing the first gospel to Matthew the former tax collector who followed Jesus and became one of his 12 disciples. The earliest, most important of these traditions come from the second century in the writings of Papias Bishop of Herapolis in Asia Minor, AD 135, and Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons in Gaul, C AD 175. I'm not sure whether I just butchered the name, but it doesn't matter. Because these early church leaders had either direct or indirect contact with the apostolic community, and when I say apostolic community, is those who have had in contact with the apostles sent out by Jesus, mainly the 12 apostles, they would have been familiar with the gospel's origins. Right, we take it that way. Moreover, no competing traditions now exist, and if they ever did, okay, that attributes Matthew's Gospels to any other author. Now, if Matthew did not write the book, it is hard to see why the false ascription would bear the name of a relatively obscure apostle uh, when more well-known and popular figures could have been chosen, like Philip, La, Thomas, or James. Make sense, right? Okay, think about it. Uh. Now, Matthean authorship is denied by some modern scholars though, especially on the view that the author of Matthew, Matthew borrowed much of his material from Mark's gospel. Now given that Matthew was an apostle while Mark was not, it is assumed that Matthew would not have needed or chosen to depend on Mark's material. Mm -hmm. But even if Matthew did borrow from Mark's gospel, it would only have added to Matthew's apostolic credibility since the evidence suggests that Mark himself relied extensively on the testimony of the apostles Peter, right? So when Jesus called him, Matthew was sitting in the tax collector's booth. You read this in Matthew chapter 9, 9. Collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, and this may have been along a commercial trading route about 6.4 kilometers from Capernaum, now, catch this. Since the narrative surrounding Matthew's call is set in Capernaum, you know, chapter 9, uh, verses 7, 10, also see chapter 4, verses 13, the text booth 
may have been on the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, and since Herod also taxed fishermen, okay, at his calling in the first gospel, he is referred to as Matthew, while Mark's and Luke's gospel describes him as Levi, the son of, son of Alphaeus. You find that in Mark 2 and, uh, and Luke 5. Now, the reason for the variation in names has elicited much discussion, by the way, but most scholars believe that the tax collector had two names, Matthew Levi, <laughs> which he either possessed from birth or took on uh, following his conversion. His occupation as a tax collector implies that he had training in scribal techniques, which means writing things down, you know, and, and writing letters and whatnot, and was thus able to write while his identity as a Galilean Jewish Christian suggests his ability to interpret the words and actions of Jesus in light of the Old Testament messianic expectations. So brief explanation of what messianic expectations is here is, if you guys have forgotten, uh, when we talk about messianic expectations, it's about Israel before the time of Jesus was waiting for the Messiah or the Anointed One to come down to Israel to restore Israel. And that was the expectation and hope that they had. Now, and then Jesus was that proclaimed Messiah. Now, for the date, right, the precise date of the writing of Matthew's Gospel is actually not known. Some scholars argue for a date later than the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And since Jesus alludes to this event in when you read chapter 24, one to, verse 1 to 28, please do check that out. And of course, such a conclusion is warranted only if one denies Jesus' ability to predict the future. Uh-huh. Now, in light of Irenaeus' assertion in AD 175 that Matthew's uh, composed his gospel while Peter and Paul were still living. So do check Irenaeus' books. Uh, it's called Against Heresies for more information. Uh, it is traditionally dated uh, for Matthew's gospel to be about late 50s or early 60s. And so now the theme. Now this is a story of Jesus of Nazareth recorded by the Apostle Matthew as a compelling witness that Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah who brought the kingdom of God to earth and is the prophesied fulfillment of God's promise of true peace and deliverance for both Jews and the Gentiles, um, basically for the whole world in short. So a few things that you will need to understand in your readings. What part of Matthew reveals that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah? So do find that out. How does Jesus fulfill God's promise? And what was God's promise here actually? Uh, for that few references, I would bring you to read on your own Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 2 Samuel 7 for starting points. Now take some time to read and tease out God's promises uh, in deliverance, not only for the Jews but for Gentiles, when the audience of God's promise actually started with the nation of Israel. Now, for the purpose, right? Nonetheless, Matthew crafted his account to demonstrate Jesus' messianic identity, his inheritance of the Davidic kingship over Israel. So if you have read the previous verses, you have known what I'm trying to say here. And his fulfillment of that promise is made to his ancestor Abraham. Again, self-read for the Bible verses. But for showing that, 
a large part of Matthew's gospel is actually an evangelistic tool aimed at his fellow Jews, uh, fellow Israelites, persuading them to actually recognize this Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. Uh, and at the same time, the gospel reveals clearly to Gentiles that salvation through Jesus the Messiah is actually available to all nations. It is not exclusive only to one nation of Israel. Now for Jewish Christians, Matthew's gospel provides encouragement to stand steadfast amidst the opposition from their own countrymen, as well as Gentile pagans, those who do not believe uh, in this God of Israel, uh, and secure, to stay secure in the knowledge of their citizenship in God's kingdom, which is very natural. When you say you believe in Jesus, right, you are telling the Jews that they've got it wrong, and you're telling the Gentiles that their gods are wrong as well. So think, have a think about it. Now, against the backdrop of such opposition to Jesus' message, Matthew establishes the identity of Christ's church as the true people of God, who now find their unity in service to Jesus despite precious racial class and religious barriers. His gospel provides necessary instruction for all future disciples, Jew and Gentile, who formed the new community, aka the church, centered upon devotion and obedience to Jesus the Messiah amidst significant opposition. To which, right, I would like you guys to wonder, why would there be such opposition when the good news is called good? Now, many scholars have suggested that the prominent church in Antioch of Syria whose members included both Jewish and Gentile Christians, was the intended audience of Matthew's gospel. They point to the gospel's influence on Ignatius, an early bishop of Antioch. At the same time, Matthew's message spoke to all the small churches of his day, and the gospel appears to have circulated rapidly and widely. And now when we read Matthew and its literary features, which I would rather you read the journal article that I sent inside um, Neo, in the large historical view from Genesis till now, Jesus comes as the messianic king from the line of David that, was, that fulfills what was mentioned in the Old Testament, if you read 2 Samuel 7. The primary genre of Matthew is that of the gospel. Duh, but here's the thing. And the organizing framework of all four Gospels is actually a narrative story. However, with the narrative framework of Mark's Gospel, a major amount of space is devoted to Jesus' discourse, his teachings, what he spoke, compared to the rest of the Gospels. And beyond that, the usual arrays are the subtypes found like in any Gospels, you know, the birth narrative of Jesus, the miracles, the parables, the encounter stories, the passion and the resurrection narratives. The most notable literature feature of this book's format is the alternating pattern around which the book is organized. Now here's a cool thing, okay, try to catch this. The material in Matthew's Gospel is based on a rhythmic back-and-forth movements between blocks of narrative material and blocks of discourse material, stories and teachings, stories and teachings, right? And there are five main passages of discourse where Jesus proclaims, teaches, and speaks. Let me unpack, remember this discourse one. It's found in chapter 5 to 7 on how the citizens of this proclaimed kingdom should live, famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. Discourse number two is found in chapter 10 on how the traveling disciples are to conduct themselves on their evangelistic journeys. 
Discourse number 3, found in chapter 13, where Jesus spoke of the kingdom in parables, what the kingdom is like. He goes, the kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like that. And discourse number 4, what warning did Jesus give about not hindering, uh, about hindering the entrance of the kingdom of God on the, and on forgiveness, which is found in chapters 18 to 20. And the final discourse is found in chapters 24 to 25 on how the human history will end. Matthew even beautifully set a formula to signal these discourses, ending them with a statement, and I quote from the Bible, when Jesus had finished these sayings, found in 7, chapter 7, verse 28, 11, 1, 13 to 53, uh, chapter 19, 1, chapter 26, 1. So you know when the discourse ends. Now, Matthew's dis distinguishing stylistic features actually include recurrent quotations and citations from the Old Testament and an emphasis on Jesus being kingly or royal. And to give you an idea, Matthew starts even opening a genealogy that places Jesus' father Joseph in the Davidic line. And additionally, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is fond of the term Son of David as a title for Christ. Statements to the effect that this was done, that it might be fulfilled as the prophets had said, and words like, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like. So you can see how Matthew really beautifully tries to draw in the Old Testament prophecies and mentions to show how Jesus was actually who he says he was. Now, other key themes to take note in Matthew, aside from what was mentioned, is to see how Matthew constantly bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament. How Matthew traces carefully the God of Israel in history as connected to Jesus. And at the end, Matthew, there is a call of response to make more disciples to know Jesus. So, to conclude this podcast lecture, here are a few things I want you to be solid with for Matthew if I were to question these things to you. Try to figure out how the beauty of Matthew creating how I would call a five-fold structure to the five discourses, how does this actually relate to the Old Testament? Hmm, okay. Now understand how Jesus is like the new prophet Moses from the Old Testament. And then I want you to learn up the usage of prophecy in Matthew. Lastly, familiarize yourself with the discourses, the five discourses, and if not, specifically found in the Sermon of the Mount from chapter 5 to 7, its ethical implications and the whole idea of what is ethical monotheism. Now, just to quickly unpack, ethical monotheism is exactly what it says it is. Mono meaning one, theism meaning belief in God. So monotheism is a belief in one God. And when you say ethical, it's this idea that this one God has given the people rules to live by, to live the right life as how they were designed to be. Uh, and this is count, these rules are counted as divine. So some things for you to think about. This is Unpacking Matthew. I'll see you in the next podcast lecture. Uh, catch you then. Ciao.